배는 Welcome back to part two of Restaurant Fiction, where we are reviewing the fictional restaurant Hawthorne from the movie, the 2022 movie, The Menu. We are talking to screenwriters, Seth Reese, Will Tracy. Once again, this is part two. Part one was the warm-up. It was the amuse-bouche, the palate cleanser. This, well, this is the coup de grace. This is the death blow. No doggy bag required. An amazing conversation where you'll laugh, you'll cry, and it's just a mixed bag of emotions that will just uh, make it all worth it. Go. Going back to Hawthorne really quick, gentlemen. Why, say, a tasting menu type of restaurant? Like, why not... Um, any other restaurant? Why an American Grill? Why why not say a fast food restaurant? Or wh- why not put the world and put these characters in a speakeasy bar? Well, I think the the simple, maybe processy answer is that it, it's a good structure for a story, and it gives you some, especially in a movie that takes place all in primarily all in one room. You need any chance you can get to kind of break up the story into manageable portions, pun intended, to be able to break it up with the even the title screen saying what the course is and to build the story in the way that chefs will build a tasting menu in almost a narrative sense. If you see interviews with a lot of tasting menu chefs, they will use that word storytelling a lot. And part of you kind of it rolls your eyes when you when you hear that. It feels maybe like a bit of an affectation or a bit of a pretension, but when you go to the best tasting menu restaurants, you, you you know what they mean a little bit in that the courses will start to relate to each other, build off of each other, and, and a course will follow a course that is very different. And also, in our film, we hit on this idea that each course really does say something about the characters. The breadless bread course kind of says something about what the chef thinks about his diners, right? The taco course tells us a little bit about the diners themselves and who they are and what brought them to this restaurant tonight. Each course kind of tells us a little bit more about who these people are. How does the writer enhance the director, enhance the producer, enhance the actor? Well, we were we were hugely lucky in that Mark invited us to be on set every day of the, of the shoot which which, so we were for there film, which for a film is not very common it's much more common in television and and mark and i had a prior relationship and had worked in television together and so i think he felt very comfortable just continuing that relationship and then bringing seth in so just having the two of us literally behind him at the monitors and inviting us to not only give notes but come on to set between takes and give alt lines to the actors or uh, suggestions for improv to the actors and 
and to help kind of guide the scene if it felt either too funny or not funny enough and try to kind of calibrate that tone. And so we were really lucky in that regard. That is, again, a luxury that not many screenwriters are afforded. Yeah, the biggest, you know, the biggest privilege was, you know, Mark would always do a rehearsal at the beginning of the day of the entire scene. We were sort of able to see, we might need to clock this as a thing. And, you know, we would talk to Mark after the rehearsal, and I don't think he hated it. Uh, If he did, if he did, he kept it pretty close to the vest, which he's pretty good at. So maybe he did hate it. But, (laughs) But he, no, he would turn to us and be like, gentlemen, anything, you know, and we would say, just maybe want to pay attention to that, you know, in terms of that, like, you know, because he is extremely collaborative. Yeah. But also he knows what he wants to. Yeah. And that's that's a really that's a really good director, someone who is collaborative. But then you can see in the back of his mind, I've made my decision. Yes. I'm done. And yeah. this is what we're going to do. And then as then as that's when as writers, it's like, go. You the man. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. You just said you guys were on uh, set all the time or most of the time for the filming of the menu. How was Crafty? You're writing a food menu. You're filming a food menu. How was Crafty? How was the food? You know, I would say it was good. Crafty. I would not say that because of the subject matter of the film that we were granted some elevated version of Crafty. I think it was just good, solid, crafty, but yeah. nothing that nothing that you would, ex- you know, there was no, there was not like pheasant consomme at the crafty. It was, it was crafty stuff, but good. But the real frustration for us is that we had an actual working kitchen in that movie. That kitchen is a real kitchen in the movie. And with all those background actors are local cooks actually cooking the food and plating the food and bringing the food out. And Seth and I did not, get to eat one single bite of it. And and one thing that is also true, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but if this movie's anything, Will and I will continue to not reap the rewards of having written this movie because the people <laughs> who will get to eat at these expensive restaurants, no problem, are Ray Fiennes, Nicholas Holt, <laughs> and Taylor Joy, <laughs> the fucking tech bros. <laughs> the people whose faces are on screen. And, Seth and, and I will be completely anonymous and we'll never get one free meal out of this. As I, if John Leguizamo, as if John Leguizamo needs another fucking free meal somewhere. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> he walks into a restaurant and everybody's so happy to see him. Like, here, give, give this guy the world. Simply because he's like a really charming, great guy who people love to be around. <laughs> Fuck that. Fuck that. We're two assholes. Give us some food. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, you know, if I'm when when I'm making an awesome high class meal, if you're around, if we're in proximity, you always have VIP seat at the restaurant fiction table, gentlemen. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We know Um, you're lying, but it still feels good. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it's crafting something currently that you're writing, a future project that you're writing how often do you both think hey what does my character eat what does my character drink are is this person just a sloppy eater or are they really really refined and they want you know a hundred dollar steak wherever they go i mean i think if they're at a restaurant you have to think about it i think if you want the detail to enhance the scene and to say something to the audience about what this character is thinking or feeling then that does 
that will certainly become an issue. I think anything at that point, any detail like that at the, at some point, even like the type of like type of cola they would drink would be a, just a small little decision you'd make. So that's a very important decision. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> leave that in. Um, now, leave only that in. This is just <laughs> the menu landed on the blacklist. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. So, so, and for those, uh, for our audience members, <laughs> for our listeners who don't know, like the blacklist is a, like a, it's a coveted just list of the top, what the top scripts in, in Hollywood. I mean, how does, how does the menu land on the blacklist? Like, are you just writing, you pass it along to your reps who then, and then you go about your lives and a year later you get an email and says, congratulations, the menu got on the blacklist. Kind of. I don't really know. I mean, do you know? I, I, yeah, I, I kind of have an idea. I think I can actually say this and answer this in a way that's beneficial for, I think, what your podcast is trying to do for writers and think about writers. When Will and I were writing the menu, Will always said that if this script is on a pile of scripts, people will see it and be excited to read it because it'll be different than all the scripts that are on that pile. And I said, no, they won't. No one will care. No one will read it. <laughs> Nothing will happen with it. <laughs> and Will Will was right. Will was right. And I think when you write a movie that has a very distinct voice, has a unique perspective, a really cool story, people get very excited about it if they can sense something original in that tone. Especially if you know you haven't written a lot of movies and you're kind of new. They want to feel like, oh, we're reading something new and exciting. I think that's true, especially with movie scripts. And then when that happens, people get quite excited and then they do start sending it around. And I think that's how the blacklist, that's how the thing with the blacklist happens, which is everyone's starting starting to send it around. Production companies start to get it. And so these people who I do think vote for the scripts on the blacklist, they have read the script because it's because they, people were excited and they got, got their hands on it. But the really the core of it is having an interesting idea and executing that idea and having an, a distinct tone and voice. Yeah, and I think probably I thought, you know, let's write something that will kind of pop out of a pile of scripts because it'll get us other work. You know, yeah, I wasn't necessarily yeah. thinking like this will get made. Yep. I think you, when you're when you're starting out, you kind of, you know, I, I think I'd heard that before, that idea that you write something that's very eye-catching, but the person reading it is going, well, we're not going to make this, but these guys are interesting. They've written a completely unproducible film, but we could give them work on something else. I think that's probably just what we were hoping for. Yeah. Seth, you mentioned voice. Uh, how did both of you find your voice and how would you describe your voice? I think that we, and Will can obviously correct me if I'm wrong. I think whatever brings you to the onion, I do think it's part of it is a dis a disdain for cliche and a disdain for the easy ways that people try to move stories forward. So I think that creates a self-editor in you that then going forward makes you get very attached to a cool premise. Because, you know, The Onion, the headline is the the most important part of the of the piece but it's that's the core idea so at the onion you get very used to like throwing out ideas that you don't like and really just 
focusing on the ones that are interesting and maybe aren't the first thought, but are the second or third thought about a thing or a topic or a social moray. So I think Will and I just kind of had that inclination naturally. And I do think then, oh, no, this is a cool idea. Uh, we should execute it because if we don't, we'll regret it because it's a the base of it is a cool idea. Say um, a young emerging, either, you know, a, a screenwriter or a TV writer, they come to you and um, instead of saying, hey, Seth, Will, uh, give me some advice. They say instead, they say, tell me some advice to ignore. What would that advice to ignore be? Or in other words, bad recommendations in your profession or area of expertise? I've never fully subscribed unless you just really need the money, which is a, a really good reason to do something. But I've never fully subscribed to the idea of like, just say yes to say yes to everything just for the experience. I find that sometimes people who do that unwittingly or inadvertently get trapped for a year or two or three writing something that they don't like writing and yeah. is making is draining their energy and their and their inspiration and their love i i actually i would say be picky has been has has served me better than like no just say yes to stuff and do it and do as many things as you can yeah i i've never found that to be true now some other writers might say i'm an idiot and because that saying yes to everything and doing a bunch of stuff is what got them good. And, but I don't know, it's, it's, it's horses for courses. Uh, what do you think, Seth? I, I feel the same way that you feel. I feel like, you know, we're, we started screenwriting a little bit, I think a little bit later in our lives where we had jobs leading up to that and we were able to make some money so we were sort of able to i mean you're writing for a show right now that you absolutely love i'm at a show that i really love and that um i feel home here and so that affords me the opportunity to not feel like i have to take every opportunity as a movie or for movie writing and then i can be kind of picky for what i like to do i will say though i have never talked anyone who's ever said they're writing something purely to sell it. I have never, that person has never said, I sold it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've never, I like, in the, in the, in the follow-up, I've never gotten, I've, I set out to write something that would sell and, oh, I sold it. Yes. I, I, think, I think the people who write things that will sell are people who are already in the business and are getting asked by studios or production companies, can you write this thing? I, we, we'll set it up for you. We can give you money because they're already established. I think if you're not already established, the do way that you can spec. Do it is, yeah. do a, is do a spec of for, to create, to show your voice and why you are interesting. Yeah. Because people want to read I, the same thing we just said. They want to read new cool ideas. They don't want to read what will sell. That's what they're doing in their day job. Things yeah. that are going to sell. They want the other thing. Yes. And they can smell the cynicism on a piece of writing that yeah. is by a, an ambitious and reasonably intelligent person who is trying to sell something yeah. rather than doing something that they love. I've only ever had creative luck doing things that I've been passionate about and been able to like really bore down into it. And I'm sure Will feels the same way. Oh, yeah. So I love the genesis of The Blacklist. I loved hearing how um, you want, the intention was to really, um, really for it to stand out. Now let's fast forward. So now um, 
say I am a Ted Sarantos or Reed Hastings or, you know, a very up, upper executive of a studio or network, I'm giving you now, both of you gentlemen, carte blanche. I'll take it. How to, much? No. Exactly. No, no, I mean, I'm giving you, I'm giving you uh, carte blanche to create automatically greenlit, a three-month-out window, fast production. I'm giving you carte blanche to create a new, your your dream fictional restaurant besides Hawthorne, but like your dream. Like what is that then new fictional restaurant? So I'm like a studio executive. I'm like, these guys know how to make a really good fictional restaurant. Boom. Here's a bunch of money. It's greenlit. No politics involved. Fast track everything. Go. So like a television show about a restaurant or a movie about a restaurant? It, it could be either. It could be either, but it has to be uh, your your dream fictional restaurant. Not not for the movie's sake, not for it's funny, but like what would that dream fictional oh, restaurant man, be? We have, to, we have to think of another restaurant. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> mine, mine is mine is the Waverly Inn, but Graydon Carter is always waiting on me. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. I'll I'll take that answer. <laughs> that's very good. I have a question for you, as somebody in the food industry. Uh, how did you feel when you were watching it? Did you feel I hate using this word, but it's the, triggered? How did you feel by the end of it? Two twofold. As a movie, it's one of my, and it's not just be, not just because I'm talking to you. It's one of my uh, favorite of the year, Thank personally. I mean, it was. I was laughing at all the wrong moments. I mean, I just found myself, <laughs> which is good because it's cathartic. Now, as a person from the business, in the business, you hit all the different arguments on the head that the inexperienced Yelper foodie who thinks they're the high and mighty who hasn't ever been in the trenches, who doesn't really know. But you also, you captured the cult-like feel to work in a restaurant like that. Now, I'm not saying all tasting menu restaurants are like that, but there are some. You captured that. You captured all the different sides. And then most importantly, you captured like, hey, luckily, like I have been in conversations like, oh, and this is, you know, no disrespect. But it's like, oh, someone will be like, hey, Monis. I I dined at Providence. I'm like, oh, good for you. And like, yeah, I spent five hundred dollars. I'm like, okay, so how was the food? I don't know. They gave me twenty <laughs> courses, and I was drunk. And I'm like, oh, great. So you you spent this much to tell me you went to one of the mission yeah. stars of L.A. and you don't remember. And right now you're just shitting it out. And personally, I know I'm going off, but like, if someone tells me, hey, I'm going to Alinea, I'm going to so and so. It's like, great, like. It, it really is just about the art and the craft versus the food. Like, I mean, I say like, yes, if you get 50% of the dishes are going to be amazing, that's actually a bonus, but you're really just going for yeah. their expertise that they're doing stuff that I can never really? do and train to do. And that's it, regardless if it's good or not, regardless if it's going to fill you up or not. Yeah. And you know, it's, you, you have to also recognize that. And I think I heard Grant Ackett's of Alinea say this once that, you also have to stop and realize that, you know, if you leave, if you're in the middle of service in Alinea and you leave, you know, there's pizzerias serving better pizza that night. You, you can have a, you can have just as good a meal that night <laughs> getting a burrito. It's just depends on what you're looking for. And you can't ever stop and convince yourself that like our food is better than that food. Right. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, that's reassuring for us. We've been lucky enough recently to kind of meet a few people like yourself who are involved in the industry and we're really 
eager but nervous to ask them, you know, how how the movie feels to them. Because in some ways, while we were writing, and especially once we were on production and we were started to work with a lot of chefs and cooks, and we, we kind of felt like we really part of the experience of the making of the movie was trying to honor their um, the experience of people who work in the industry because they are not always well served by film and television, right? Some of the narratives don't really feel a lot of connection to what the real experience is. So glad you enjoyed it. Seth, Will, thank you, thank you, thank you. That was incredibly insightful and kind of uh, made me hungry. Made me hungry for uh, to go back to Hawthorne. Anyway, for those who want to see and experience Seth and Will's current body of work, well, guess what? Check out the menu. It opens mid-November. So hopefully by the time you listen to this Restaurant Fiction episode, and hopefully immediately go to a theater, before it is on streaming, that is, and see it. Because it is a theater experience type of movie. We don't care how awesome state-of-the-art your home theater television surround sound system is. The theater is where you see and experience one of the best fictional restaurants of the entire year in TV and film. And if you want to experience all the additional great works that Seth and Will have produced, have created, well, just Google them. They're there. I mean, yeah. As for us, with Restaurant Fiction, you found us. You're now listening to us. I'm sure you can find all of our other episodes because they're right behind this one. My name is Monis Rose. Hit me up if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Monis at restaurantfiction.com. Until next time, nothing makes sense. And nothing ever does. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Night.